0: Psalm 79, will be there in a little bit, Psalm 79, I'd like to begin this morning with a quote, this evening, uh, with a quote uh, taken from a book called Do Things Well, that's the name of my sermon, the opening chapter of this book is written by Brother Max Dawson, And uh, I'll read you how the book begins. It is an addiction and a curse. It's a curse that prevents churches from reaching their potential for God. The curse hinders churches from converting souls for God. It is an addiction that does not want to be broken. It It is an addiction and curse that dishonors God and withholds from him the glory due his excellent name. The addiction and curse is called mediocrity. It stands diametrically opposed to everything God is and to everything God calls us to do. It means settling for less than our best. It is happy with half-hearted efforts and results, and it is a disgrace to the God that we serve. This uh, this evening, along with this book, which uh, I have taken this sermon from and inspired by, I want to argue against this addiction and this curse called Mediocrity in the Church. Uh, mediocrity is, it, it's an interesting to think about mediocrity as an, as an addiction um, because it is so easy to, to be mediocre and it's so hard to break out of that habit. Um, doing things well uh, requires effort, requires energy, requires time. But to be mediocre, all you have to do is sort of the minimum competent effort. And if we can find a way to be satisfied with mediocrity and to excuse our mediocrity and even to expect mediocrity, we will not break our addiction. But mediocrity is very easy, it's very tempting when it comes to the Lord's work. And so, for example, it is just easier to be mediocre about our worship. To just sort of check off the five boxes, to say that we've done those acts of worship, and then consider it done. Without concentration, without thought, without any transformation sought. If we're asked to lead worship, we can be tempted to sort of expend the minimum amount of effort to fulfill the expectation of me in doing that, and then... Think about doing nothing more than that. It's very easy to be mediocre in our Bible classes. You know, as teachers, the temptation could be to find some way, somehow, to fill the 40 minutes. And then as students, the temptation is to treat class as an elective, because after all, the teacher doesn't call roll in this class. And when we do show up, it's easy to be sort of mediocre about our preparation and engagement, because, hey, it's not like I get graded. It's very easy to be, to be mediocre about the church's business. You know, to say, sign-up sheets, they're not really my thing. Someone else takes care of it eventually. Or if we do volunteer for a task, to procrastinate about it and to do inferior work, because after all, it's not like we're getting paid for this. Now, let me be clear. When we talk about mediocrity, we're not talking about talent. We're not talking about ability. We do not all have the same talents and abilities. And I'm not asking someone to be excellent in an area they have no aptitude in. What we are talking about this evening is effort. Effort. It's about refusing to be satisfied with mediocre effort, with minimal work. I challenge you to find anywhere in your Bible where God is satisfied with anything less than our best, where good enough sort of pleases God. Look and you'll find not only does God not approve of mediocrity, he repudiates it and he calls it a sign of our irreverence toward him. We need a spirit of excellence. It's a spirit that characterized so many of God's faithful servants. We need to do things well. So here is my my single point. Number one, when God asks us to do something, this is the overarching point. We'll get to number one. When God asks us to do something, it's worth doing well. If God asks us to do something, that something, whatever it is, it's worth doing well. So what I want to do is sort of ask three questions that drives home the importance of excellence in our effort as we serve God. And then we'll make three applications of those principles. So three questions that will help us see the importance of doing things well. Number one... I want to ask this question, what is the purpose of our existence? What is the purpose of our existence? Now, we might be tempted to answer the question with uh, quoting the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember this line? That this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments. And that sounds like sort of an overarching, overarching um, purpose. But I would say, really, I, I would, I'd probably stick with what the text calls it, which is a duty. This is the whole duty of man. It doesn't explain purpose. It might explain what we do in light of that purpose, why we keep God's commandments. But if you want purpose, you've got to go deeper than we should do stuff God said. The purpose question is, why do we do stuff God said? Well, in Psalm 79, God's people are appealing to God for deliverance from an enemy, probably from Babylon. And so the psalm begins, Psalm 79 in verse 1 They cry out, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Skip down to verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will, will, Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So they are pleading with God to deliver them from this enemy. But I want you to look at the exact nature of their appeal. They do not say simply, God, deliver us because we want to be delivered. They don't say, God, deliver us for our sake, deliver us because we are scared, deliver us because we are in danger. There's an even higher appeal than that that they make. Not deliver us for our sake, but verse 8. Do not remember remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. And then here is the, the, the ground of their appeal. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. The appeal for deliverance is not do it for our sake, although they are asking for God to intervene on their behalf, but it's not do it for our sake, but God, do it for your sake. They're appealing to the covenant God made with Israel. God established a covenant with Israel for the purpose of glorifying not them, but him. That they would be a shining city on a hill. That they would reflect God's goodness into the world. That when God chose a people, he didn't choose it simply for their glory. He chose it to redound to his glory. And this is, I think, more of the purpose question. You know, when God promises Israel a future savior, he explains why he does this. Why he chooses and saves his people through the saviour. And so this is Isaiah 43 and verse 6. Bring my sons from afar and daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by by my name, whom I created. Why did God create us? For my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory, not ours. That's his purpose. This is Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Several times God says, I'm not acting to deliver you for simply your sake, but rather for my name's sake. And what was true of God's people in the Old Testament is also true of God's people in the New Testament. When Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What God is up to through Christ and in the church redounds to his glory. God created man in his own image for the purpose of glorifying his name. He chose Israel so that his special people would glorify his name. He delivered Israel from, bondage, from the bondage for the sake of his name, he says. Jesus established his church, and it is for his glory that we work. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to glorify God. He is at the center of it all. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what I'm trying to say in this first point is, if, if we understand what our real purpose in life is, which is to glorify God... Then mediocre, mediocre effort in service to God will not, I think, be a viable option. If we exist for God's glory, then we should give it to Him. When God asks us, asks us to do something, it's worth doing that something well. Second question Who is this God that we serve? Go with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 2. At the end of his life, near the end of his life, David begins to make preparations for building the temple. But it wouldn't be him who would actually build it. It would be his son Solomon. And in this chapter, Solomon is assigning more than 150,000 men to this work. It's a huge undertaking. He even sends letters to kings of surrounding kingdoms asking for their assistance, asking them to send their finest craftsmen to help construct this temple for God. And so Second Chronicles 2 and verse 4. Second Chronicles 2 and verse 4. Behold, <clears throat> I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicated to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the irreg- regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons of the appointed feasts of the Lord our God is ordained forever over is- for Israel. The house that I'm about to build would be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? What we're reading here is Solomon grappling with the, the enormity of this task before him. He understands the, the, the irony of this enterprise. We're building a house for a God who cannot be housed in, in any building. Any building he might build would never be worthy of God and couldn't possibly contain him. Not even the highest heaven could do that, he says. But Solomon says, in my own small way, I am determined to do this great work because the God that we worship is great. He knew that the excellent God deserves an excellent effort. No, not even our best and finest work could do justice to God. We know that's true, but that doesn't prevent us from giving him the best we possibly can. And so skip down to verse 9 when he describes the process of building it. And he says in verse 9, To prepare timber for me in abundance for the house I'm, I'm about to build will be great and wonderful. The greatness of the temple was, was not a test, testament to the, to the greatness of Solomon. It's a testament to the glory of the excellent God Solomon worshipped. The Lord of heaven and earth was worthy of nothing less than Solomon's highest and utmost effort, an extreme effort for an excellent God. See, what Solomon is showing us is he knows who God is. And the question is, do we know who God is? God doesn't ask us to build ornate temples like Solomon was tasked with building. But he does give us our own work for his glory all the same. And the question is, how could we be satisfied with any less than our best when it comes to the, to the work he has given us? Not this work of building a temple, but the work he actually has given us. With the work of preaching, with the work of teaching, with the, with, the, with the work of song worship, with the work of even how we maintain our place of worship. In all of it, when God asks us to do something, it's worth doing well. If we understand who he is, it's worth doing well. Now, a third question before we move on to a few applications. Number three, what if we got, give God less than our best? What if we give God less than our best? Go with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi. Last book in your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 is a case study in mediocrity. God announces here his, his absolute displeasure with his people. He calls them here to repent and that judgment is going to come on this careless and disobedient people. Their worship had degenerated into a malaise. They were treating God in a way they would never treat any person of real honor on earth. Instead of giving God their best, they had become accustomed to giving God the junk, the leftovers, the less than excellent. And Malachi chapter 1 is the prophet's words to those sorts of mediocre worshipers. Malachi 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? And here's God's response. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Answer, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Let me give a modern example of what they were doing. So imagine on your birthday... You've got a good friend, and he hands you a long box, and you open up the box, and what he's given you for your birthday is a broken nine iron. Okay? And he says to you, I wasn't using it. I was going to throw it out anyway. It's it's really of no use to me. Uh, I also know I kind of have an obligation to give you a birthday present, so it's kind of a win win. Uh, You get a present, and I get rid of some junk. How do you feel? Well, I'm probably saying, well, just wait till your birthday comes around, buddy boy. See, that's the kind of thing Malachi's, the people of Malachi's time were doing with God. That's the kind of thing they were doing. They said, yeah, we know we kind of have this obligation to give you stuff, God. We know that's kind of part of the deal. Uh, And then we have these cows over here that are blind and that are lame and they're injured and that are diseased. And we don't really like having them in our herd. So it's a win-win. God gets a sacrifice and we get rid of the junk. We have this obligation, yes, we meet it, but we don't want to expend effort to sacrifice something of value. We don't want to pay the cost of that. So we'll weed out what we don't want and we'll give it to God. They should have been giving God the animal that would have won the blue ribbon in the state fair. That's what they should have been giving him. But instead they gave him what was of no value. And God says, you'd be better off giving me nothing than insulting me with this mediocre sacrifice. Verse 10, Malachi 1 and verse 10 Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. If only someone would just shut the doors to the temple and we wouldn't go on with this charade. God deserved better. He deserved better then. He deserves better now. If we offer God cheap, half-hearted efforts when it comes to worship and service, he'll be no more pleased with us than he was with his people in Malachi's time. Now, someone might say, well, you know, the things we give to God, God God doesn't require that we reach some high standard always. You know, all he cares about is that we're sincere in what we give him, no matter what it is we give him. You know, there's the widow's two mites. If all we can give him is two mites, then God will be happy with that. And there's some truth in that. God does not require things of us that are beyond our ability. But I do want to challenge that sort of rebuttal with two points. Number one, don't conflate ability with effort. Don't conflate ability with effort. No, God does not require you to give more than you're able to give. That's true. If all you have is two mites, God doesn't condemn you for not giving ten mites. If you only have one talent to go with a parable, if you only have one talent, God doesn't judge you because you don't have five talents. But God does require us to give and do to his glory with all of our might. And what we often do is excuse lack of effort by lack of talent. We use I only have two mites as an excuse to give zero mites is what we sometimes do. Don't conflate ability with effort. And second, I would challenge that way of thinking by saying this. We have more than two mites. We have more than two mites. Many times we plead poverty literally and figuratively. We plead poverty to excuse poor effort. Now, if we don't feel like we're getting enough credit, we're quick to boast about our abilities and our efforts, and we say, I did this, and I'm good at this, and I'm not getting credit for this, but if there's some responsibility, we want to duck. We're often quick on the humility card. We say, oh, I'm just not good at that. Malachi says, carelessness and mediocrity and effort, just don't cut it. Not in his day, not in our day. Half-hearted efforts, haphazard service is never what God deserves. Shoddily prepared sermons... Do not do justice to God. Unprepared song services don't glorify God the way he deserves to be glorified. Poorly prepared and poorly attended Bible classes do not draw anyone to Christ. Meeting in a dirty church building sends a bad message about our esteem for God. Look again in Malachi 1 and verse 6. Malachi 1 and verse 6 A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. He says sons honor their fathers. A good son will honor his father. Any good son knows he should do that. But the father of all mankind gets treated like a doormat. Where does this make sense? Servants honor their masters, but the Lord of lords just gets thrown a leftover every once in a while. How does this make sense? We wouldn't think of being so careless and mediocre with our fathers, with our bosses, with the dignitary we would happen to meet, with people we want to impress. And yet he says, Israel, you bring God, the God of heaven, the junk, the leftovers, the haphazard, the mediocre. And as he says in verse 10, your worship is so careless, it would have been better just to shut the whole thing down than to keep carrying on the charade. Good enough is not good enough when it comes to glorifying God. God deserves the best. He deserves the first fruits in the law of Moses, the most effort, the most excellent. Anything less, he calls irreverent. So we need to remember what the purpose of our existence is, that is to glorify God's name. We need to remember who this God we serve is, the excellent God, the creator of all things and the creator of us. And we need to remember what God's people in Malachi did. They stopped glorifying the excellent God through mediocre efforts through giving God leftovers, through expending minimum effort. My point is, when God asks us to do something, it is worth doing that something well. So let me end with three areas where we need to do things well, where we should expend effort in these ways. Let me say, maybe just add a quick thing. I'm not fussing at us here in this sermon or anything like that. Um, this is not some glaring thing I see. This is just a helpful reminder. I'd read this book, and I thought it made some very excellent points, and I wanted to share it this message with you. So let's do things well. Number one, let's do things well in worship. Let's do, thi- do things well in worship. Let's start with an easy, uh, an easy one I think we can all get on board with. Uh, let's start with the guy in the pulpit. I want you to imagine if the preacher stood up one Sunday and said, you know, uh, I had a busy week this week. Uh, I had lots of yard work to get to. Um, you know, my blood pressure was a little, little low, so I had to watch a lot of cable news to get that up. Um, I just had a lot going on this week, and Sunday just kind of snuck up on me this week. Sorry about that. Didn't really get around to sermon preparation, so I'm going to ramble for about the next 30 minutes. We'll quote a few Bible verses along the way, and then we'll do the standard same thing. Would you be okay with that? Would God be okay with that? It is very obvious that that effort, that mediocre effort, is not okay. We would not accept it. We should not accept it. Preachers should preach well. God's word deserves the very best effort the preacher can muster. Now, I may not have the speaking ability of Apollos, the eloquence of Apollos. I might not have the breadth of education and the intelligence that Paul had. But preachers need to muster up the very best effort they possibly can. It is a task that deserves excellent effort. So let's keep going with it. That's an easy one. Men, When we are asked to lead public worship, is that worth doing as well as we possibly can? Now, to lead singing well, you do not need a degree in musical theory. You do not need operatic training, even though our song leader this evening kind of does have those things. Yes, God does want the melody to principally take place in the heart. That's true. But when God asks us to do something, that's not an excuse to do it in a mediocre way and say, "Well, I meant it in that mediocre effort, it's worth doing as well as we possibly can." And so when, when we're actually singing, it is worth it. God is worth it to prepare our songs ahead of time, to be thoughtful about that preparation, to thoughtfully consider perhaps a message being communicated in those songs, to consider a theme of the song service. To think through things like how frequently do we sing this song? How are we going to pitch this song? How fast I'm going to lead this song? All those sorts of things. That attention, that forethought, is a sign of our reverence and worship. You know, this is, a, this is, this is one that sometimes I need a reminder of. Was the last time you considered what a huge responsibility is to lead a whole congregation of Christians in prayer? Isn't that a huge responsibility to bear? You're speaking to God on behalf of dozens of other people And they're going to say amen with you, and your prayer is going to become their prayer. So those dozens of other people, they're going to need to hear you, first of all, clearly and loudly. They're relying on you to speak to God for them, to petition for them, to express thanksgiving on their behalf, to express what it is the church needs. You don't need the eloquence of Paul to pray publicly. But that's not an excuse for unthoughtful prayers without any meaning, just pure rote rote, uh, repetition. If we're going to pray, it's worth doing that well. And for everyone, for everyone who worships, remember, we are all fellow, fellow participants. That means things like we need to show up on time so that we can begin to worship together as one. When we're asked to bow in prayer with the leader, we need to remember we are praying too. We're not just listening and evaluating their prayer and afterward we'll think either that was a good prayer or a bad prayer. That's not what we do. When we sing, it's it's hard to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs if we just kind of, you know, mutter a few words and then think about how we think the song leader did. That's not what we're doing. When we listen to a sermon, we listen attentively. Communication needs both a transmitter and a receiver to be effective. This is not about performing. That's not what we do here. It's not about impressing each other. It's not about impressing people with us. It is about giving God the excellence he deserves knowing as solomon did that the best we could possibly give him will fall woefully short but that's not an excuse to do a mediocre effort when god asks us to do something and god asks us to worship it's worth doing that as well as we possibly can so let's do things well number one in worship number two let's do things well in bible class it starts of course with the teacher teachers need to prepare well for bible class Um, i've been in bible classes i've not been in one here but i have been in bible classes where the teacher's plan is to get a workbook and to read word for word out of the workbook and then ask the true or false questions and people answer, and then that's end of class. And it's, it's a mess, and I never learned a thing from, from a class like that, and it never got me excited about the Bible, and I didn't want to come back to that class. God's Word deserves to be taught well. So if we're asked to teach a Bible class, we need to expend effort. We need to think about the best way to get God's Word into the minds of those who hear. We need to care about our children's Bible classes. I remember a, a preacher who had done a lot of work in children's Bible class curriculum told me once, he said, growing churches always have vibrant children's classes. Growing churches always have vibrant children's classes. Our children's classes need to be a priority, not an afterthought. And so that starts, of course, with, with people like me, with parents, to make sure our children are here and prepared for class." As a church, we need to make sure our teachers of those classes have what they need to teach well and are supported to do that. But for participants of all ages, you don't need a Ph.D. in theology to be a good Bible class student or to teach a good Bible class. You don't need that to to be a part of it. You need to do things like this. You need to expend effort to show up, to show up on time, to show up prepared, whether that means to read the text or prepare the lesson ahead of time or simply to pray, to pray before class. And to come with a good attitude you know what second Timothy 316 says all scripture is breathed out by god and it's profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the man of god may be competent for every good work if that's what we're dealing with when we open the bible do you think it's worth trying to do that right to impart all of those benefits as well as we possibly can to impart competence to god's people If God's God's word is worth teaching, and it certainly is, then it's worth being taught well and it's worth being learned well by everyone who comes to do that. We need to do things well in Bible class. Finally, number three, let's do things well in the practical business of the church. Now, we're not building Solomon's temple here. That's not what we're up to. God has not asked us to do that. God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. You remember what Jesus said in John 4, The hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The church is not a building. The building merely facilitates gatherings for worship. But with all of that said, we do need to attend to the needs of this building so that this building can serve its purpose and facilitate all of that. We need to make sure things, make sure things are working in working order, that things are clean. You know, would you frequent a business that smelled weird and had, had dirty bathrooms? If all things equal, would you choose to go there if you had any other choice? And isn't this building at least important, as important as some business business building? Do You remember how Haggai called Israel to task because their houses were so well kept and so beautiful while the house of worship was in total disrepair? He said, my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So what would it say if we let this building fall into a state we would never let our own house fall into? So the point is, when when some business of the church needs doing, whether that's building maintenance, whether that's a sign-up sheet, whether that's some administrative task, we need to be eager to see it done. And when we agree to do, do some task, we need to do it promptly. We need to do it well. We need to be at least as conscientious about doing the church's business as we would be on the job with the boss looking over our shoulder and a paycheck and all of that sort of thing. Because if anything, I'd argue, we should be even more conscientious and more prompt about the church's business if our priorities are straight. If the church has a need, big or small, it's worth meeting that need. It's worth meeting it in an excellent way. Not procrastinating and not holding things together with spit and glue. So let me ask you to turn to one more passage and then we'll be done. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reminds us what our work is in a nutshell. Why we do everything that we do. He reminds us who we are and he reminds us what our work is. First Peter 2 and verse 9. He reminds Christians, First Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who we are. And here is what those people do. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are. You are this holy nation. And you know what you do? You know what your job is? It's to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has made you all of those things. And my argument this evening has been that we should pursue excellence in our service to him in whatever form that takes. Not because we want to seem like we are so excellent, not because we want credit, but because we want to shine a light on God and his excellence. If God has asked us to do something, it's worth doing that something well, not for our glory, but for his. When we pursue excellence, it's God's excellence. It's God's glory that we seek. And when we do things well, We let all all men see something about our God, that he is an excellent God worthy of all glory, worthy of praise, worthy of the best we could possibly give him. Do things well. And so as we wrap up, let me ask, is there some way in which your life has not reflected the excellencies of God? You have not been treating him as the excellent God that he is. Maybe you need to repent of your sin. Maybe you need to seek the prayers of this church. Whatever your spiritual need, we invite you now as we stand and sing.
1: While we pray and while we please, while you see your soul's in need, while your Father called you home, will you not, dear sinner, come? Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Why not now? Why not now? now? Why not come to Jesus now? Come to Christ, confession make. Come to Christ and pardon take. Trust in Him from day to day. He will keep you all the way. Why not now? Why not now? Why not come to Jesus now? Why not now?